0: The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. So what we started last week to uh, to discuss the sovereignty of God over sin and suffering and Satan and, and even evil... Uh, though God himself is, is righteous and sinless and holy, uh, I realized that that was, that was a, a big uh, a big bite to, to take off. Um, and the concept that a world that has sin and suffering and evil and, and a Satan, a devil, and all those things are real, and that they would exist and that that is actually part of God's sovereign, complete, uh, plan from eternity past. This was no second best option, or this this wasn't uh, at least in the infinite mind of God. It wasn't kind of an alternative that He kind of put in motion after things fell apart. No, this was this was all part of the plan. And God is good, and He does good. God always does good, and He and He is good. That's what Psalm one nineteen tells us. And. He holds man responsible for our rebellion against Him in our sin. And so He will judge us in His righteousness because of our sin. And so so those are two things that we have to hold in tension, that God is both good and righteous and knows everything. He's omniscient. There's not one single thing in the universe that's ever happened that was outside of His control and His sovereignty, his, His ordained plan from eternity past. And... Man and our sin and our rebellion, our rejection, our our wickedness are responsible. We are held responsible before God for our guilt, for our sin. And so, those th- those are two things that we have to hold intention as theologians, but also as evangelists. Because someone might argue, well, if if you know, uh, if God knew about this and I fell into sin, well, then how can He blame me? How can He possibly hold me? accountable and the reality is he does hold you accountable and you are and and if you do not bow your knee to king jesus you will uh, suffer the consequences of his just wrath and judgment and so we just did a, a brief overview of the sovereignty of god over sin and suffering and satan and even the devil while at the same time god upholding his righteousness his holiness his perfection. And in our sinfulness, God doesn't lose one speck, uh, one ounce of his righteous character. His character is not damaged or hindered at all. And so let me me kind of recap that with a little ditty from Jonathan Edwards, okay? Listen to this. Buckle up. Jonathan Edwards. Uh, About 1,700 years before, excuse me, after the New Testament is concluded. Listen to this. It is proper and excellent. I wouldn't usually read a quote this long, but it's just too good. It is proper and excellent, a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory, the infinite glory of God, to shine forth. And it is proper that all parts of his glory should shine forth. All parts. That every beauty should be equally displayed. Thus it is necessary that God's awful majesty, his authority, And dreadful greatness, justice, and holiness should be manifested. But this could not be, that is, all of those perfections manifested, unless sin and punishment had been decreed, parentheses, from eternity past. And if it were not right that God should ordain and punish sin, there could be no manifestation of God's holiness in hatred of sin. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there were no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. If sin and evil did not exist, no matter how much happiness he bestowed to his creatures, his goodness would not be so much prized and admired than if sin and evil did not exist. So evil is necessary in order to achieve the highest happiness of the creature And to fully display the glory of God for which He made the world. That's that's why God made the world, was to fully, fully display His glory. All of His attributes. Because the creature's happiness, listen to this, consists, it exists, in the knowledge of God. Every part of God. The knowledge of God. And the sense of His love. And if the knowledge of Him is to be, uh, sorry, if the knowledge of him be imperfect, the happiness of the creature must also be likewise imperfect. In other words, if there is a single attribute left out that we do not know of, then our happiness will be imperfect, not only in this life, but for all of eternity. So God is not holding back any of his perfections in time and in the present and in the future, but he is dead set on displaying the full array of his character which includes his justice, his righteousness, his wrath, his punishment, all of that. Apart from sin there would uh, which apart from sin there would be no manifestation, no demonstration of those things. So so I know that's that's a that's a handful to deal with at 8:45 in the morning, 8:57. That's Edwards kind of summary of what we talked about last week. And all of these things that we're talking about in the next couple of weeks could simply be cause for despair. Despair, why? Because if we're talking about evil and sin and suffering, uh, which uh, LGBTQ issues certainly do possess a, a real sense and depth of suffering because it is the direct result of sin and is sin itself. If left... There, we would only despair. But you see, from, what, from, from that Edwards quote, why not? Why we don't have to be left in despair and dread? It's because God is in control of all of it. He's in control of all of it. And so though the church is on the, quote, wrong side of, of uh, um, law, and the moral majority, even this week, there are bills being passed uh, where teachers are not allowed to uh, report to parents that their children have said, I would like to be called Erica rather than Eric. Or they have come to the, the counselors or the uh, uh, the nurse's office and said, hey, I'm having some feelings that maybe maybe I'm, I'm trapped in the wrong body. And I don't say that jokingly at all. <coughs> I mean, there are 13-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 18-year-olds and 35-year-olds who are, who are wrestling with these struggles, these, these wrong thoughts. And nurses and counselors are encouraged, don't call the parents. Now, should we all just leave California because of that? Should we all flee? Have you felt like doing that maybe? Maybe. I, 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 right? I think we probably all wrestled with it. But just, just remember, utopia is not here. We are called to go to the ends of the earth. You think when when the early believers uh, and when missionaries started traveling into Africa, into uh, into uh, Indonesia, and into island nations where there were cannibals who were going to who wanted to kill them and eat them. If if the Great Commission was not only possible. But it was going to be accomplished. Those things would have never happened. But believers believed Christ. And 40 families in the village of Salubulo on a little island in Indonesia, Sulawesi, just came to know Christ in the last year after 30 years of Laura's aunt and uncle translating the scriptures, preaching the gospel. And Phil died six months ago and didn't get to hear any of that. He's in heaven now, and 40 families who had never heard the gospel did over 30 years and repented and believed. So, utopia is not here. So, it doesn't matter where we run, it doesn't matter if you're homeschooled, or, or charter schooled, or private schooled, or public schooled, you will be exposed to these things. And what we have to remember is that God is in control. And though we may be on the wrong side of the law and the moral majority, and that does put us in a tough position. We don't despair. We do not despair, okay? So don't despair. Confess, Lord, it, I, am, I am nervous, I'm anxious. I don't know what the future holds for my children. Look, the generation ahead of us depends on you and I telling them the truth about these things, about sexuality, about gender, about how God made us in His image, and that that is glorious and precious, and that some of the most wonderful cosmic realities are displayed in the creation of male and female and marriage. We must hold the line. And so don't despair. And here's several reasons why you should not despair, okay? Are you ready? You can take notes. I, I brought paper and pen. I'm sorry I didn't bring... Uh, a great outline for you today. Forgive me for that. So, um, Chris, would you like to help, brother? I, I know you're, you're just settling in there, but there's a box of pens. If you need a pen and paper, would you just raise your hand for some notes? All right, here's reason number one, not to s- despair in light of all of this. In light of whatever Gavin knew some signs on his desk this last week or this week, do not despair because the sovereignty of God is over everything. Listen to what Job 42 verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God can do all things. He can preserve us. He can protect us. He can help us think clearly about these things. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does what? All that he pleases. That's right. All that he pleases. Number one, that's the first reason we don't have to despair. The second reason that we don't despair is is because of the invincible hope of unconditional election. Listen to this. What do I mean by that? That God has determined to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation dependent on nothing that they could do. No work, no walking of an aisle, no taking the first step toward God and him meeting you halfway. Listen to this. Because of the infinite hope of unconditional election, We don't despair. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That means people who struggle with same-sex attraction or, or transgender temptations or lies, that there are people whom God has chosen from eternity past that He plans to save and He will save them and lose none of them. And so that means our mission will be successful. Don't despair because of the the rock solid plan of God's electing purposes. Ephesians 1 says this, Even as he chose us in him, in who? In Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself. As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his what? Will. His will. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, according to the purpose of his will, which is to make us holy, which is to make us his through Christ, and which is to sanctify us and take us from here all the way to eternity. Here's a third reason you don't have to despair in light of all of this. It's because of the guarantee of the lamb's victory. In other words, he already bought those people that he will save. He has already purchased them. The lamb's victory is sure. It is final. Jesus is the lamb of God from eternity past who would be slain. Why would he be called the lamb? And the Alpha and the Omega, if the plan from eternity past was not that God would send his own son and he would be crushed for the iniquities of us all. This is God's plan. And so surely he is going to help us and he is going to save those that he purchased through his son's precious blood. But also we don't despair because of the soul conquering power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for the what? Salvation of... Do you know what it says? Romans 1.16. Let's flip there together. Memorize this because you'll, you'll need it. You'll need this as you interact with and love those who, who you are reaching that are wrestling with these sins. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to who? Everyone who believes to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. The gospel is powerful. It is able to save. So remember when you're tempted to despair that the gospel is able to conquer the met, conquer even the, the uh, most horrifically trapped and deceived person. Don't walk away from them in disgust and shame. Rem- remember, no, there is a remedy. And it is the gospel. And it is powerful to save. There's more paper and pens up here. Here's the fifth reason. You don't have to despair. Because of the invincible mission of Christ to build his church. Jesus is Lord and Savior, he is master, and it is upon that truth that Jesus says, I will build my church. Upon this rock, upon Peter's affirmation of the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son, that he is the Savior, Jesus is building his church which includes people who struggle with heterosexual sin, that is sin uh, sin of lust and impurity for those of the opposite gender and those who struggle with homosexual sin. Jesus is building his church and he's saving people out of all of those backgrounds and sins. But also another reason not to despair is because of the necessity of suffering and persecution as a means to reaching God's elect. Listen, if we are longing for utopia here in the foothills, in El Dorado County, then we are missing God's sovereign plans for suffering in the lives of believers in order, just like Christ suffered, to reach those who are God's elect. If you don't want to suffer, then pretty much plan on not sharing the gospel with anyone. But if you want to be a part of the Great Commission and you want to be a part of what God is doing in His great redemptive plans for the world, then you need to be prepared to suffer. But listen. Listen to these rich promises. Therefore, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He endures everything for the sake of the elect. But then... Here's a final promise, a final uh, aspect, uh, a final truth so that we don't despair because of these, because of the the state of our world. Not only is there a necessity uh, of suffering and persecution as a means to reaching God's elect, but finally the, the promise of reward to a suffering and persecuted church. Your suffering is not meaningless. When you seek to share the gospel with someone who says, you're a homophobe, you're homophobic, you're a bigot, you're narrow-minded, you're just old school, you're just a religious zealot, listen to this. Blessed, the Lord Jesus Christ says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. When you stand up and you say to your 13-year-old friend at school, Hey, I understand what you just said to me. I understand that you're, you're, you think that, uh, that it's, it's okay for you to feel the way that you do. You know what? I have wrong feelings as well. I have sinful thoughts as well. But can I tell you what the Bible says we should do with our sin? We should confess our sins. We should repent from our sins and say, Lord, give me right desires so that I can please you. When you are persecuted for righteousness sake like that, Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, you are in good company if you will suffer for the sake of righteousness as you seek to proclaim, to tell forth the life-saving soul, saving news of the gospel. I'll just assume that was a worship song. (laughs) Listen again what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It's light. It's momentary. And we don't feel like it's light and momentary when we're walking through it. But it is in light of the eternal weight of of glorious, joyful fellowship with Christ and with His people on a restored world where there's no more wrong feelings, sinful feelings, and thoughts and actions, and no more tears and all of that. Glory is coming, and so don't despair. And then in the end, although a, a a massive revolution is upon us, a sexual revolution that is literally seeking to redefine everything we stand for, listen, nothing has changed for us, for believers. Nothing changes. The Great Commission has not changed. The gospel has not changed. The word of God remains unchanged. And so we're going to continue to think about these things by God's grace in a way that is both evangelistic and that is hopeful and that is glorious as we think about God's purposes for men and women and for eternity. Now, I'm aware that there may be some in this room that battle with same-sex desires or attraction. And of those, for those who do, for, for most of you, those desires and attraction for the same-sex, uh, you did not ask for nor want. Now, I'm just, I'm just being real. We have a church of 300 people that didn't all just grow up in Shingle Springs, but they come from different parts of the country, different parts of our state. And there are those in our midst, certainly who struggle with these things. And maybe there are desires that you have always had. Maybe they've, they've emerged slowly over time. And just so you know, I'm not aware of anyone in this room who, who is wrestling with these things. I just want you to know that. But there may be. You are not inferior we're not mad at you. Your pastors love you. Your church loves you. But I have heard from some of those who battle with these desires that they can feel so shameful and, and feel dirty and defiled and unforgivable that, you feel, uh, that they feel as, as though they are beyond saving, even beyond repair. But here's the hope. Here's the thing. If you are in Christ and you love Him, and you long to be holy, and yet you battle with misplaced desires, same-sex attraction or desires, you need to hear this loud and clear. You are not the enemy. But there is an enemy. You're not necessarily in any more trouble for your sin before a holy God than anyone else's. You're not inferior. We're not mad at you. You're not in in trouble. You don't have to, and you must not keep your struggles hidden. Don't do that because as the church, we want to love you and care for you. We want to help you battle with your sin just like you want to do. Because if you're in Christ, that's exactly what you want to do. You want to please him. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, your aim is to please Christ. I trust that that's your desire, just as it is mine, as I battle my own sin. And so as a church, we want, to, we want you to know that we are here to help you go to war against your sin. Not just against these desires, but of all the sinful desires, desires with which you struggle. That's, that's all of our position. We go to war. We don't give any ground for any sin in our lives. We say, no, I will forsake my sin and I will get help. I will go to my brothers and sisters. I will not go to the world and ask them for help because they don't have a single ounce of help for you. They cannot deal with the issues of the heart. They will not and cannot help you think straight, no pun intended, about sexuality and gender and your sin and the issues of the heart. You go to the word of God and you go to biblical counsel. You go to God's people, just like we all do. And so as a church, uh, we want to grow in being the safest place in the world for people to confess even their deepest, darkest struggles and sins and secrets and all of that, knowing that you'll, you'll get in response comfort and hope and encouragement and help and the all-life-transforming power and love of Jesus Christ, we are all after holiness. We are all after life change. But we know from Scripture that authentic holiness isn't produced by a culture of fear or intimidation, so that is not the point of any of this. So, so keep in mind that, that if you're wrestling with any of these things, this is, in, in a lot of ways, new territory for a lot of people. How, how many of you remember in 2015 when the White House waved the rainbow flag for the first time? <coughs> remember that? I was thinking about it with a brother recently. I think that was when we, we for sure saw that this thing was taken off, right? That it wasn't just kind of this hidden thing that was going to kind of be rolled out slowly any longer because there was a plan. There is a plan. God has a bigger plan, amen. But that that, that was a public display, right? Uh, No longer are these things kind of talked about in in hushed tones, but now from the highest levels of authority and government, we are going to display that we say that this is no longer shameful or sinful, but this is normal and good and right. And if you disagree, then you're the bad guy. I remember that. And some of you were, who was born after 2015? Anyone? Golly, I don't think anyone. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm just looking around. I don't think we have any nine-year-olds in here. Oh, yeah, I remember when the colors were displayed onto the White House itself. Yes, yeah, yeah, and yeah, right, that's right. Yeah, so, so we're not here to say, well, we need to get back to our Christian roots and, and, and all of that. I'm not, that's not necessarily the point, although that would be great, right, if we had a, a government that loved Christ, and wanted to rule from the scriptures, that is coming. That is coming, right? Jesus will be uh, the wonderful king that we are looking for one day. Uh, But this is kind of new territory in ways. And so let's be patient with one another. Let's be patient with our church as we pray through these things. Let's be patient with those who are struggling in our midst with these things and not to condemn them. And not to say, yeah, we don't have time for you. Those are too yucky and those issues are too serious and intense. But let's think hard about how to minister to the lost and to those struggling in our own world with these issues. Hope to provide encouragement for those as well. And so how do we talk about those trapped in these sins? We're not going to despair, but how do we think about these issues and how do we talk to them? It seems like one thing to share the gospel or talk with folks living in kind of respectable sins. That's a term that Jerry Bridges coined. Kind of occasional lying, anger, uh, maybe some cheating here and there, disrespecting their parents. But, but not, not the kind of stuff that we're talking about. It, it, maybe in our minds, one thing to minister to those people. They've not done any real heinous things in our mind. And it seems like a totally different beast when we start talking specifically about those trapped in LGBTQ sins in this deception. And so when we think of those most difficult to love in our lives, it's probably those that we would um, find on a list like this. Those that are hardest for us to love appear probably on a list like this. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor uh, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. These will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think probably at first glance we'd say, well, yeah, that makes sense. You know, of course, that list is pretty terrible. But we forget Verse 11. And such were what? Some of, some of you. Such were some of you. In other words, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, such were some of you. Some of you were adulterers and idolaters. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were thieves and greedy and drunkards. Some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified. These things happened to you. Christ through his spirit washed you. He sanctified you. He justified you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. And so it's difficult for us to love those who we see in that first part of the text if we don't first start in verse 11 and say, okay, so was I. I was once trapped in the same kinds of sins as those in the LGBTQ sins. Or what about a text like this, T- Titus 3? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's Titus 3.3. 3. But we forget what verse 4 says in the beginning. We ourselves were once, what? F- uh, we were all of these things. We were foolish, disobedient. But then he says this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness not by works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy and so those trapped in the lgbtq sins of our day are not so different than you and i at the, at a fundamental level they are sinners just like us in, in fact They, just like you and I, are sons of Adam, affected by the fall and totally depraved, slaves to the prince of the power of the air and deceived by the nation-deceiving dragon. Not always doing all the evil that we could do at any given moment, but unable to please God because of our unrighteousness. And so we, just like those trapped in these sins, We're once enslaved, blind, desperately sick, and enemies of God. But we remember that the gospel of a sovereign and supreme God and Savior can change anyone. Do you believe that? He can change anyone. Anyone. Absolutely anyone. And so we must must pray with compassion and courage to love them, uh, that they might see the love of Christ, the world, their desires, Satan himself has, has let them down, but we cannot as believers we can't. we can't let them down. We must tell them that there is a better way that there's a, a better way, and that there's a God who made them and loved them, loves them, and wants to fulfill them and satisfy them and give them purpose and meaning and, and Satisfaction, which is exactly what they're looking for, just in the wrong places. Just like you and I were, in our sin. In uh, in fact, here's an example from a gal named. uh, He's actually uh, so a girl, teenage, fourteen year old girl, who told her parents that she her name is Chloe Cole, that she was having weird feelings and she was she was just starting to go through puberty. And she was having strange thoughts and wrestling with strange thoughts and just felt weird. And if any of us can remember that time, it is a weird time. Junior high was the most awkward stage for me of my whole life. And she had just weird, she just told her mom and dad, mom and dad, I, I feel strange. I don't feel like myself. And you know what they did? They took her straight to the doctor. And the doctor told her, well, those feelings that you're having, it's because you're transgender." Though you were born as a girl with female chromosomes, you are are biologically a female, you should begin transitioning to be a boy. And so what did they do? At 14 years old, she has a double mastectomy. That means both of her breasts were removed. She had multiple surgeries. She began taking hormone-blocking medication. And for the next four years, her life was a train wreck. And listen to what she says. Now she's detransitioning, which is really impossible. She'll never be able to have children. She'll never be able to, uh, she would never breastfeed a child. She has a a, a voice that has been uh, permanently lowered by these hormone uh, treatments. Listen to what she said. My doctors, with their theories, this is just in the last year, with their theories on gender, thought that all my problems would go away as soon as I was surgically transformed into something that vaguely resembled a boy. But their theories were wrong. Their drugs and surgeries changed my body, but they did not and could not change the basic reality that I am and forever will be a female. She's 19. She's probably 20 years old now. Devastating, isn't it? She was, she was testifying before a, uh, um, a, uh, a group of politicians with, her, with a medical doctor who was uh, on, the, on the other side of the transgender movement who, who herself said, there has never been a girl who has transitioned to be a boy. It's impossible. Though medical doctors in the pharmaceutical world would love to tell you that they could because of a vast kind of satanic movement a pharmaceutical industry that loves to benefit off of the medications that are given, the surgeries that are performed, it is a massive, massive system. And she's saying nothing actually changed except for my body was destroyed. So what if a family member or a friend said to you, Mom, Dad, I think that even though I was assigned to be a boy or a girl at birth, I'm I'm not. I know my chromosomes say one thing, but I feel another way. In other words, uh, I'm, I'm a boy trapped in a girl's body. I'm a girl trapped in a, I feel like I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body. What do we do? What would you say? Will you help them? Where do you start? How do you respond? What questions would you ask them? What theological truths would you go to? What Bible passages might you ask them to look at with you? How would you relate to them going forward? And that's what we're going to look at today and some next week as well. I have three daughters. One's in inside baby still. But she's a girl. But the culture wants to tell our inside baby that she can be anything she wants. Right? Don't don't assign any Anything to her like boy or girl. Don't do, She has to decide that. That's up to her. I recently read of a man who paid, I think I told you, 14000 to transform himself into a collie dog to live out his dog dreams. And I know it's wild. I know it's wild, right? But it's not so far-fetched from the, the transgender movement. If you can be whatever you want to be, why not be a collie dog? Or why not try your hardest to, to kind of live out those dreams? Now, I wonder if he paid cash or how he paid for that. It is interesting. Uh, it's sad, if anything. But no matter how hard you try, uh, boys will never be girls, and girls will never be boys. You can't change your gender. And the idea that, that, that you can be whatever you want comes when it comes to sexuality and gender is based on an ancient lie this is what we need to remember first that you can change the way that god has made you it is based on an ancient lie and i say an ancient lie because it's the same lie that that the devil used to deceive eve in the garden did god really say did god really say that if you eat from that tree that in that day you will surely die Is that that exactly what, are you sure that's what he said? And humanity has been in rebellion against God ever since, thinking our ways are better than his. But there's more. The ultimate battle is always over truth. It's not primarily over uh, physical things or, or against people. It's the truth about the fundamental nature of what it means to be a human being. And this is what is known in theology as anthropology. Anthropology, the study of people, of human beings. Now our world, kind of the the, the, the uh, evolutionistic worldview is is undergirded by what's called naturalism or uh, that, 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 that the physical natural that all that exists is physical and natural. Material and, and, uh, and the universe is just, phys- it's just, it's just particles. And, and what does not exist in that lump of material is God. God does not exist. That's the assumption. That's the story authored by our, our culture, particularly the LGBTQ culture. And they go a step further. They would have you believe that you find meaning and identity in your sexual desires or your gender identity. And one author said this, not only is this a profoundly shallow view of what it means to be a human being, but also there are victims of this lie. This is evidenced by the rates of drug abuse, alcoholism, depression, and suicides in the LGBTQ community. The thing that they are searching for mainly... So, end quote. Here's the thing. The thing that they're searching for mainly meaning and purpose and identity are not found where they're looking. How do we know that? We know that because of alcoholism and depression and suicides and drug drug abuse. These things are all elevated in these lives statistically. And so in response... To this kind of naturalistic worldview that you just are whatever you think you are, and you're just physical stuff, you're just material, so it doesn't matter. Just go, which even that you know, just go with your feelings. Well, that betrays a naturalistic worldview unless feelings are somehow material, which I think most naturalistic scientists would say that they're not. They're something other, if they're honest. So in response, believers have to offer a better view of what it means to be human, a, really a higher anthrop- biblical anthropology. And so that's what we're going to kind of discuss this morning now is we must lead. When we're, when we're talking to someone who's wrestling with these sins, we're going to call them sins because that's exactly what the scripture shows, and we'll look at that this morning. When we're dealing with these issues, we have to lead with a biblical anthropology. That's a biblical understanding and study of of humans that accounts for the value and the worth and the identity of humanity against the materialistic worldview that diminishes humanity that says you're just stuff. You're only physical stuff. You don't have a soul. Your feelings are just kind of whatever they are. So if they make you happy, you should follow them. When we lead with this kind of biblical understanding of man, we find ourselves on sturdy ground to minister to those trapped in these sins of idolatry, of the physical and of the self. And we can speak to them with love and compassion, remembering that the God of this world has blinded their minds. Listen to that. Their minds have been blinded. Blinded their minds, Paul says, the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In other words, they think that Christ, some do, is, uh, is he can't give them what these sins say that they will, satisfaction and joy and contentment and fulfillment. And then you have the, the, the whole kind of transgender, LGBTQ affirming uh, uh, false Christianity, that says that they can't have Christ and all of those sins. But in in our time together, we want to accomplish what we want to accomplish from this understanding of the image of God. We want to first, we're going to look at the first thing that we want to accomplish or that we will accomplish as we walk through with someone who is saying, "I, I am struggling with these sins. Maybe it's a Christian, someone who's saying, Hey, I've never told anyone this before, but I, I am battling with lust. And my lust happens to be toward a person of the same gender, or or I am I'm wrestling with some thoughts, and and I feel like I'm 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 in the wrong body here. I just need to share that with somebody because I'm confused. I need help. I've read what the Bible says, and I know I need help. Or if you're talking to an unbeliever who is saying, uh, "Oh yeah, you're a Christian." Well you're just you're just bigoted and, and tran, uh, transphobic and, and, and homophobic. Uh, you're the enemy, you're the bad guy. Where do we go? How do we start? Well here's, what, here's the first thing that we accomplish when we start with the biblical understanding of man. We establish first thing uh, th- that the person trapped in these sins, we established with the person trapped in those in this delusion that human beings are much more than their sexual desires and gender identities. So, first thing humans are much more than their sexual desires and gender identities. You're, we're more than that. We are far more than our sexual desires and gender identities. But the opposite is what the world says is true. You are defined. You are, you are defined and you will only find satisfaction and contentment and joy when you have give full expression to your desires, your pursuits, your longings, whatever you feel on the inside, seek it on the outside and you will find contentment. Now, according to the Bible, mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 with me. Genesis 1. 26 to 31. Now according to the true story of the Bible of, of humanity, of reality, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're his handiwork. We're made with a purpose. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. We're made by Him. We are His handiwork. And in particular, <clears throat> believers for good works. But let's read this text. Can I, have, can I have someone with a, a speedy, loud voice read these verses, 26 to 31? You got it? Sure. Go for it. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Boy, that's a repetition. Okay, let's actually stop right there. It is a repetition. Okay, very good. Uh, So let's let's pause there. God created them, man, uh, male, and female. And then verse 28, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill Fill the earth and... Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the, of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the creation mandate. We are called to subdue and rule over the earth as God's, uh, rulers taking care of his world as reflections of his goodness, uh, In other words, what mankind was supposed to do was an image of what God himself is like. He is both a ruler and he is kind, he's gracious. Adam and Eve were to be good rulers and to to care for God's world as, uh, as, as those ruling over his creation. But he does this in relationship, which is also a way that we reflect God's image. We are made for relationships, just like the Trinity is in relationship for all of eternity. And so, so, even, uh, so sex and gender are included in this, male and female. And God blessed them and he said, be fruitful. So that means a male and a female are called to be fruitful. That's part of this union is that men and women produce babies. That's a good thing. Be fruitful and multiply. He blessed them. This is a good thing. And these are intrinsically good and they serve a purpose, don't they? Not only are they good, but they're blessed. So sexuality is is blessed. Uh, That is good. And children are a blessing from the Lord, right? Children are not a curse, nor is your sexuality, nor nor is your gender. They are good. And this is the main point. Every human being is made in the image of God. And it's in this image that God gives people dignity, and value, and worth. And, and, and these are the truths that should lead the way in conversations. And I just want to say not, not primarily the specific sin that you are aware of in this person's life related to their LGBTQ sins. That is not the main thing. It could be any other sin. Now it is a main thing. It's a big deal in our culture. It is prevalent. It is, it is very relevant but when we're, what we're saying is you have value and meaning and worth and dignity because, not primarily of your gender, but because you are created as a human in the image of God. And he made you male or female. That's true. But you are his image bearer. That's part of what it means to be uh, in his image. We have, uh, part of what it means is that we think, we speak, we have feelings, we relate. But also that we are male or female. And that God says that this is good. And so it must be that we, we think of people, first and foremost, not as their their sin, although they are sinners, but they are people made in the image of God who do have dignity and value and worth. And part of how God designed them with dignity and value, value and worth is their gender. Genesis 1 says that God created male and female in his own image, but then chapter 3 shows that sin entered the world, and with it, people kind of recreate self in the image that he or she desires instead of God's design. And that's true in many areas. As our thinking is affected, including uh, our sexuality, our sexuality, um our identity whether someone is lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender uh, they identify as those things we have people who want to be known by primarily their their sexual identity but that is far from the greatest identifier in uh, for a human being even people who would like to be called a gay christian they are they are putting the word They're putting their sexuality before their identity in Christ. But a Christian says, first, no, I am Christ's. And that means I'm a Christian. So that means whatever Christ says I am, I am. Whatever Christ says I must do, I will do. Whatever Christ tells me not to do, I will by his grace seek not to do. Make sense? Listen to what Rosario Butterfield uh, uh, wrote. She was a... Living as a uh, uh, lesbian professor of, does anyone remember? Uh, I think Syracuse. at Syracuse of philosophy and I think of uh, literature or something like that. So a really really uh, renowned university. And she says this as after she became a Christian, she got saved. As as a pastor and his wife just faithfully loved her. They welcomed her into her into their home. They did what no other person had ever done by by just. Loving them and not making the main thing her sin. But that she was a person with dignity and value and worth because she was made in the image of God, regardless of the sin that she was struggling with. She says this, sexuality moved from verb, that is practice, to noun, people. And with this grammatical move, a new concept of humanity was born. The idea that we were oriented or framed by our sexual desires, And that self-representation and identity rooted uh, was now rooted in sexual orientation and not in the purposes of God for His image bearers. In other words, that was the transition. Sexuality moved from a verb to a noun. I am blank, rather than well, yeah, you get the idea. So, but as Christians, we understand that identity isn't in gender; it's in Jesus. It's in Jesus and our relationship to him. In fact, that was, I think, a direct quote from Phil's Layton, uh, Phil Layton's notes from 2016. I don't, Phil, remember where that quote started, but I know it ended right there. As Christians, we understand that identity isn't in gender, it's in Jesus. I think that's the quote. And our relationship to him. So is the unbeliever. Their identity, even though they say it is, is not, is not their gender. They've been deceived. Their identity begins as an image bearer created by God himself with dignity and value and worth. Even though that image has been somewhat fractured and marred by sin, Christ, who is the perfect image of God, the perfect man, came to restore and redeem the broken pe- the broken mess of our lives. Not all in the image of God has been lost in man, but Christ comes to redeem it and restore it. And so, that's the first reason that we lead with a biblical understanding of men and women, of gender, a biblical anthropology, because we understand that only in a biblical understanding of man is there true meaning, value, worth, dignity, and all of that. And I know we've got one minute, which is ridiculous, but it is what it is. We'll just kind of start into the second one here. Second, a biblical understanding of of man, of of anthropology, it rebukes those who condemn us as bigots and homophobic. A biblical understanding rebukes arrogant condemners, those who condemn us as homophobic and bigots. Let me just start with this. Often, uh, the, the message that our world hears from the Christian is centered on what we're against. At least that's what they've perceived. We're just people who talk about what we're against. We're not this, we're not that. We don't do this, we don't do that. But when you lead with, hey, listen, friend, I don't care what your sin is. You were made in the image of God. God made you. He created you intentionally with purpose. It doesn't matter if they're wearing a, a dress and they're a man. You could say that to them and mean it. And it's truthful. So you can just kind of skip right past that and say, you're made in the image of god and when you do that you're reminded that your battle is not against primarily people but it's against uh, ideas it's against wrong thinking it is against lofty thoughts raised against the supremacy of god himself our battle is not ideas uh, is with ideas not with people let me just read this verse and then we'll be dismissed just so you, you, you believe this point. The biblical anthropology reminds us and it condemns those who make us, you know, say we're homophobic and we're, we're just bigots. We're not fighting against people. We're fighting against ideas. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, i.e. people as the primary problem or the enemy, <laughs> but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, uh, literally against the world rulers or the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our goal is not to defeat sinners, brothers and sisters. It is not against the LGBTQ community or government officials or the pharmaceutical industry primarily. Our fight is against ungodly ideas that Satan spews and that the wicked flesh of unregenerate people, they they lap up because we despise the rule of God over our lives and, and we prop up ourselves as authorities and as rulers. And so our goal is for sinners to become holy. That's our goal is that they would know that they are created in the image of God that our battle is against ideas it is against helping it is helping them see and think rightly about God himself and about themselves and no matter the sin we can we can address them compassionately graciously because we're not fighting them primarily or what they wear or how they speak or how they sin but we're addressing them as people made in the image of God who have wrong thinking. And we can point them to Christ who can transform their thinking to be pleasing to him. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, I just pray for our hearts that we would continue to, to grasp these things. Lord, your truth helps us to see clearly and to see through the lies of our world and of Satan himself and of our flesh And I pray that you'd continue to help us think clearly and rightly about these things. In Jesus' name, amen.